I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. Among the many challenges in managing breast cancer, the initial breast conserving surgeries often don't remove all aspects of the tumor. In fact, second surgery rates following breast conserving surgery range up to 40%. Why is the rate so high? Why is properly identifying the tumor so difficult? Most importantly, what can be done? Dr. Mira Golshand is Deputy Chief Medical Officer for Surgical Services and Director of the Breast Cancer Program for the Yale Cancer Center, Smilo Cancer Hospital, and Smilo Cancer Hospital Care Centers. He is an innovator in tailoring surgery and therapy for patients with early-stage breast cancer and has been a BCRF investigator since 2014. In fact, Dr. Golshan is the principal investigator of several Phase two trials aiming to reduce the need for second breast cancer surgeries, one of which uses innovative image-guided operating room capabilities to capture and remove all residual tumor utilizing MRI and mass spectrometry. His other approach changing the patient's position during imaging. As Dr. Golshan reports, he's reduced the need for repeat surgeries by a remarkable 70 to 80%. Among his next goals, scaling that technology to make it widely available to all. One other aspect you'll hear as part of this important conversation, Dr. Golshan understands cancer not just from his experience with patients, but also his experience as a patient. About two years ago, Dr. Golshan himself was diagnosed with cancer. He is now cancer-free and fully at work, but as you'll hear, after decades treating cancer professionally, experiencing it personally left him with a stark realization. He actually knew very little. Before my conversation with Dr. Golshan, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Dr. Mira Golshan. Dr. Golshan, thank you for joining. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me this afternoon. Of course, I have many questions about your approach to tailoring surgery and therapy for women with early stage breast cancer. Um, I realize you are globally renowned in this, but I wanted to start with an aspect of your medical and scientific approach that I confess we don't often read about often in uh, the medical journals, which is you once celebrated a patient's three-year survival milestone by meeting her at the top of a mountain and skiing down. That's a, that's a heck of a medical approach that we, we don't read about that one very often. Yeah. You know, so when, when a woman or, you know, any patient really kind of comes to the operating room and, you know, you, you're in a very vulnerable position to say the, the least, and you're waiting for anesthesia and nursing and, you know, the doctors to, do their safety checks and um, you, you, I mean, you see the, the, the pain, the vulnerability, the fear in their eyes and no matter what they give you know, beforehand to kind of take that anxiety away, um, people are scared and uh, you know, some will benefit from you know, 
a, a gentle hand on the shoulder or holding their hand or just, you know, some casual banter. And in this case, you know, it was a patient of mine, you know, I, I was practicing in Boston at the time and a patient of mine who, you know, came to us for care from Colorado and from a very avid skiing family. And um, she had a really tough um, course. She had a triple negative breast cancer, had to get chemotherapy up front and uh, was preparing for a, a very major operation with reconstruction, you know, six, seven, eight hours and, mm. and young family. And she was, you know, one of the first things she wants, wanted to do when she recovered from all this was to, to, you know, to get up back on the slopes and ski again. And, Sure. You know, I, I, I tinker around with skiing. I'm definitely not uh, anything professional or great, but I said, you know, let's, let's get you through this. And then um, in, in the future, we'll, we'll meet up in uh, at Vail mountain where they ski all the time. And I, I was fortunate three years later to um, meet her and her family up on Vail mountain. And, you know, we skied a couple of runs together, had lunch together skied a little bit more and you know basically they were just kind of playing with me you know keeping up on the green <laughs> and blue trails and then they took off on the the double diamond so uh it, it, it was a lot of fun and uh something i'll never forget well it was nice of them to humor you in that way a couple of times and um obviously uh that example of your own humanity and connection um, and as I've read about you, uh, I confess I'm not surprised, uh, having you know now learned a little bit else about you. But that's uh, um, a that's a it was it was nice to read about and and nice to hear because that uh, you know that connection between doctors and patients we don't always hear that we we know that the care is always there, but uh, um, that certainly says something. Thank you. No, it was, it's great. And we've, we've remained very close friends uh, and, and with her family and, you know, got to see, you know, she's gotten more importantly, she's gotten to see her, you know, kids and, and family grow. And, uh, and we're, we're just fortunate to be part of that team. That's wonderful. So let's talk about the medical care and let's talk about the areas where you in particular um, specialize and, and spend sure. your energy and focus let's start at the highest level, I think. And if maybe you would take me through the process, um, how does a lumpectomy work? How do you determine what needs to be done for each patient? I mean, this is a key step, obviously, so that the patient can then advance to the post-surgery stage. Um, You also spend a lot of your time, I believe, um, trying not to reach a surgery stage. So talk to me about both aspects of that, please. Yeah. So, um, you know, historically, many decades ago, all women, you know, with breast cancer had to be treated with a mastectomy. And fortunately, several decades ago, really pioneering, thoughtful people like Bernard Fisher and Umberto Veronese and others started testing this concept of lumpectomy or partial mastectomy, or basically just removing the tumor. And what we hope is a rim or ridge of normal tissue uh, usually followed by radiation and comparing that to mastectomy. And we've shown that, uh, that overall survival is exactly the same. So one isn't better than the other in terms of keeping a woman alive longer. Um, there's slight and very slight difference in what's called local recurrence, the chance of it coming back in the breast, um, was slightly higher with the lumpectomy and radiation. But again, it doesn't uh, affect the outcome of the woman. The challenge with lumpectomy, though, is we want to remove the tumor. We want to 
get it all out, get what's called clear margins, and leave her with a cosmetically acceptable result. So, you know, do as minimum damage and removal of tissue as possible. The challenge, though, is that we do that during surgery, and then we have to wait about a week for the final pathology to come back. And it's not uncommon where that final pathology will show that those edges or those margins around the tumor aren't clear. And it's not like um, some um, some people will say, well, why can't you do it like they do, dermatologists do with like Mohs surgery, uh, you know, they will take little shaves and test them while, you know, while they're removing that um, that lesion. In breast tissue, the, the primary component or a large component has a, a large fat um, component or um, adiposity. And so doing this things like frozen section or testing it in real time really isn't accurate and doesn't work. So we mm. have to wait a week and you know, historically, anywhere between 10 and 40% of the time, a woman has to come back a second time for what's called a, a reoperation for clear margins. And of course, you know, giving, making that phone call and saying, you know what, we got, we got most of it, but not all of it. Um, you know, we got to meet and discuss what the next steps are. You know, I think, you know, we should go back in, try to clear those margins out. That's not only disconcerting, disappointing, you know, news to give, you know, it raises the anxiety of the patient. Um, certainly yeah. doing more surgery will um, uh, reduce the the cosmetic benefit because you're going to take more tissue out. It's going to lead a delay, a delay into the other treatments that are often necessary, whether it's chemotherapy or radiation leads to increased, you know, healthcare costs. So anyone, no one's been able to figure that out um, yet. And that's one area that I've, you know, spent a fair amount of time researching and Maybe we could touch base a little bit later on the um, what's what we're pushing towards in terms of de-escalating or you know trying to put myself out of business. Um, in terms of <laughs> we we all would love to see you as a ski bum, <laughs> you know, spend, having to spend all your tennis game a lot better. But yeah, <laughs> well, that's our that's our goal is to to put you out of business. Let, let's so let's go straight to that because that that is the part that I want to. There, there are two parts that I'd really like to understand. One is. Um, why is it so darn hard to get the imaging right under current, you know, current procedures? Why, you know, why that 40% and why is the imaging so hard? And then two, to your point, um, what, what are you doing uh, to try to ensure that, that you don't have the privilege to work again? So the, the challenge is that um, the tumors that we see, sometimes we we can feel them, but in the United States and many uh, parts of the, for example, you know, in Europe, um, the, the population is what's called well-screened. So we, you know, women do mammography, ultrasound and MRI, and we're catching these tumors at uh, pretty um, small sizes. They're often not palpable, meaning I can't feel them at the time of surgery. We then rely on our radiology colleagues to help us um, during the, the operation, um, not only telling us kind of the size and the location, but helping direct the surgery as well. And it's um, uh, unfortunately, it's the, the targeting uh, is not perfect. And when we're trying to remove that tissue, we're always, uh, the tumor is, we're always trying to balance the the uh, aesthetic cosmetic outcome with the, the main goal, which is to get that uh, tumor cancer out of her and to get her to heal and recover. And 
you know, the, the, in, in the United States and in all over the world, you know, the, the breast tissue is, um, you know, something that, you know, in terms of the, the surgery that we do, it's balancing that cancer or oncologic outcome with the, um, with the, with that aesthetic outcome, because the woman at the end of the day, she's got to be comfortable with what, what she looks like um, afterwards, whether, you know, she's looking at herself in the shower or the mirror or with a significant other or a spouse. Um, and, and we haven't been able to figure that out in real time. And so it's not just my work, but there's, you know, hundreds and thousands of others around the country and around the world who have trying to figure out how we can cost effectively and during that first operation, you know, reliably tell her that we got it all out, you're cancer free, you know, time to, you know, you know, heal and move on, you know, to the next phase. And, and we're not quite there yet, although we've made some really kind of exciting advances in that area. Yes, you have. Tell me, please, about the exciting advances. You are testing interoperative imaging and molecular technology um, to improve those surgery outcomes. So, you know, one um, test that many women, not all, but many women with breast cancer get is a breast MRI. And if uh, any woman who's listening uh, to this will know that they get that breast MR in what's called the prone position, meaning they're lying on their stomach. Uh, the breast goes through an aperture and then they do the imaging to, uh, of the, of the, of both breasts, um, or the, the one side that where the tumor is yet as a surgeon, I've never operated on a woman's breast with her lying on her stomach. She's always lying on her back, of course. Um, and the breast is not a fixed organ. So like the brain or, you know, other parts of the body where if you put someone on their stomach or back, it, it's a, it doesn't move, but the breast moves quite a bit. And one, one thing that we noticed was that when we were actually imaging the woman in the position that we're operating, there's a lot of tumor change, meaning the cancer not only looks different, it's position different, hmm. um, than it is when we were imaging them lying on their stomach. So, one of the trials that we have underway is looking at um, imaging of a woman's breast uh, in terms of with MRI in, in the actual position that we do in the operating room. And there are actually several other correlates or secondary studies that have come off of that uh, as well. And I, I think that w- was, you know, you would think that's a pretty simple thing is just turning a patient, you know, 180 degrees, but no one had done that until you know, I started looking at this in this um, fancy operating room we had at the Brigham Women's Hospital and now doing it uh, at, at Yale um, University. And what has it done in terms of uh, rates and cases and re-excision and that type of yeah. thing? So it, it's cut it by well over 70 to 80 percent, the re-excision rates uh, in terms of reduction um, the, the challenge though, is that building, you know, the operating room that where we were able to test it is a very expensive operating room where we just can't build a lot of those all over the United States. But the goal of the research was to test it in this particular operating room and then bring it out into the real world, you know, real life where, you know, every woman or most women would have uh, access to this. And so we've pushed, pushed this from this kind of test bed, uh, operative suite, to a much more widespread um, utilization um, in 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 real time and and in the real in, in quote in the real world, that second area that we were looking at is this thing called mass spectrometry. So when 
I started doing this research on MRI. It, it's in this specialized operating room. It was called Amigo at the Brigham. It's a, a advanced multimodality image guided operating suite. And it's one operating room. There's a lot of really kind of smart people in many other disciplines that were um, working. And so there's brain cancer surgery that was being done there, lung cancer, and many other types of tumor. And I met a a PhD um, that was working on brain cancer um, and tumor resection at that time with one of the neurosurgeons. And, you know, she had told me that there's this, you know, technique that they're working on. And this is Dr. Natalie Auger, who works with me um, on my project, uh, that looking at the difference between cancer and normal, she was fine, especially in breast cancer, she was finding that there was this interface or there was this border that looked very different um, under a, a test called mass spectrometry. So we're, we have developed a technique where we can test that tissue that I remove in real time to tell if there's tumor left or is it clear at the time of surgery. Now, if we could do this in real time, then the next step is to say we can develop a a tool, a box, an object, a, a detection device that is, you know, cheap that could, you know, that anyone or, you know, any hospital can afford and be able to utilize. And um, that's where we're working on next. And it's, it's, it's an exciting area. Yeah. That, that's the, the real time visual overlay device. Correct. Correct. Uh, and so on the first part, Two two questions that I'm thinking of in, you know, turning the patient 180 degrees. Um, first one is you, you identified, right, to, particularly to a layperson, an outsider like myself, one would think, well, gosh, doctors must, you know, sometimes they, they do the imaging or do it on the stomach and sometimes they do it on the back. And at some point in history, they must have figured out like, you know, 60, 80 years ago, which side was the best way to do it. What inspired you to kind of, think about that. And was there, was there like an aha moment? And, and did you kind of knock yourself on the forehead afterwards and, and say, yeah, like, why do we, we should yeah. know this a lot. I mean, not only me, but so many of us could have figured this out long ago. So one, one of the interesting things is that, you know, MRI is a breast MR is used for women that um, for example, that have hereditary mutations like BRCA one or two, or the Angelina Jolie's or Christina Applegate's of the world. We know in that case that it can actually identify tumors that mammogram or ultrasound or my or my exam can't. However, for women who are newly diagnosed with breast cancer, most uh, they we've done trials that uh, looked at whether MR would help MRI breast MRI would help the surgeon in terms of being able to reduce that reexcision rate or you know determine the true extent of the tumor. And interestingly, those trials uh, both done in you know, the United States and the UK and around the world actually did not show MRI to be a benefit. So if you have a test that's actually better than, you know, mammography or ultrasound, why wasn't it working? And, you know, one of the aha moments was that when I was, uh, when we were doing our trial and the woman would have the MRI done lying on her stomach, and then I'd operate lying on her back and then look at the MRI when it's done 180 degrees um, in the opposite direction and seeing that difference between what the tumor looked like before and after and its location, 
I don't think any surgeon in their mind was looking at that image um, that was done when they were lying on their stomach and in their head that they were flipping the patient over on her back and and trying to figure out what ended what ended up happening to that tumor. I think we almost just looked at that image and then we operated as if that was the the position we were operating on. And it was only when I kept seeing those pictures, you know, lying on her stomach, then lying on her back that that it was like so strikingly different that maybe this was one of the reasons why MRI didn't work. Um, and again, should have figured we should have figured this out long, uh, potentially long ago. And and it took something like this to to be able to do it. And again, it it, it was because of you know the there's no way that this would have worked without the um, you know the funding and support from uh, BCRF. Yeah, and the the data that you mentioned, this this the stats, the reduction of I think you said seventy eighty percent is yeah. uh, is remarkable. It's remarkable uh, being able to 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 do that. So you know, our goal is then you know we're testing it, and maybe I can show that it works. But then, how can I bring this you know specific operating room or technique to something that you know any breast surgeon you know in the United States or around the world can do and and that's uh, the, the the second phase of, of therapy. Which is interesting. It sounds like both on that capability and on the real-time visual overlay device, you're, you, two sets of challenges. One is the initial discovery and hopefully, which you have done proving, showing you know, indications that it works. But then secondly, how do you bring it out to scale? How, yeah. how do you make it affordable for any hospital? Um, and, and what's kind of your prognosis on on that how you know how long how successful how much how hopeful how many obstacles yeah so i'm hopeful so then i went and got my mba at mit to figure out how i can get this to to, no i mean that's not well that was it ends up being very helpful um to get a a a business degree especially as a, a healthcare provider we often kind of figure out, you know, we may figure out something that looks and makes sense to us and should just be easy to do. But when you try to bring it out to the uh, real world, it just doesn't, you know, it doesn't get there. So, I mean, believe it or not, that was not the only reason, but one reason I did get a uh, an MBA and went to a pretty good place called MIT where, you know, math and numbers uh, um, play a large role in, in, in sorting things out. So I am hopeful the great news is, though, that there are so many other people that are working on this, uh, mm. not just me and our, certainly our group and our program, uh, but there's so many others. And if it's not my you know, MRI or mass spec, there's so many um, other possibilities. And I do hope that one day, you know, that it's one and done. They go into the operating room, they have their surgery done, and, you know, nearly 100% of the time we tell them it's out in... Um, and then we move on. And, and again, that whole reducing that re-excision or that second operation, you know, and sometimes when you tell a woman that they're going to have to be operated on a second time, you know, they're going to say, well, I don't want to go through this again and completely understand. Sure. Well, they'll say, well, I'll just do a mastectomy because you're going to remove everything then. And I don't have to worry about a third operation. And, you know, that's a tough argument to, 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 um, it, it's something that I completely understand. And, Again, we mastectomy is not a wrong operation. It's certainly an option and a choice women have. Um, yet, when we can give as good outcomes with a um, a smaller operation with a much quicker recovery, many women will choose that route. Um, 
in starting to close out the conversation, uh, can we talk about you for a moment? You, of course, uh, are not just a doctor and not just an MBA and a, a business person, um, but you've also been a patient and, and you experienced uh, cancer yourself. You've written about it um, very, very powerfully. Um, in the, well, you may have written more than one piece, but the piece that I saw um, yeah. on Medium, there were, you know, so much of it spoke to any person, you know, human. And, and a couple of lines really stood out for me. Um, one was, since receiving my own diagnosis and starting treatment, I've realized I actually knew very little. Yeah. And, and second one was, when I get back to practicing again, I will ask patients what they want to know. And, and what they want to know. Yeah. yeah. So what, why do you, you know, what was that like to feel that you didn't yeah. know as much as you had thought, and what were the what were the parts of cancer that you knew very little about? So, um, you know, I'll, I'll flip the question around in terms of I'll answer the second part first. Um, what patients want to know? So, I, you know, researched breast cancer, operated on so many thousands of women um, from the United States and around the world. And honestly, I thought I knew every, you know, anything and everything about breast cancer. And I would come in, you know, talk, you know, to, uh, to the woman, ask the questions to them and their family and examine them and, you know, reviewed all their, you know, testing and imaging. And, you know, I came with a plan and I would like to tell them, you know, all the possibilities, you know, that, things like we we're just discussing now that re-excision is a possibility or that, you know, the cancer may come back or may not come back. And I would give percentages and numbers. And many patients love that, meaning they want as much information as possible to make that decision. Yet when it was me and, uh, and it wasn't breast cancer, but it was me dealing with uh, my own diagnosis, you know, my wife and I, our, our only concern at that time was, that I'm going to be okay and that we can get through this and that there are options and there's hope. And all those numbers that I was spewing out before, you know, just kind of fell away. And they, you know, they were anticipating that I'd be asking, you know, what are the percentages and what are the odds and what are the outcomes? And, and I wasn't asking any of that. And then I thought, you know, for years, this is what I've been doing. And, um, and why don't I just ask the woman and, and their family or their spouse, or, you know, we have patients with male breast cancer, ask him, you know, what, what it is that they want to know. Um, I'm happy to go into excruciating detail and, uh, and, and spend as much time as needed. And, and sometimes you just, they just want to know, let's just get the show, let's get the ball rolling, uh, ball rolling and move on to the next step. And they didn't want to hear it. Um, and when I say I, when I knew so very little, yes. you know, I, I see a, a, a patient, you know, episodically, meaning, you know, we, they're diagnosed, I meet with them in the office, uh, maybe meet with them one more time before surgery, I see them that morning of surgery, operate, see them a week later, uh, postoperatively, and then I may not see them for six months to a year. And then, you know, what, what happened or what's going on and the, 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 the challenge is not only that the patient goes through or that I went through, but that, you know, my wife, my children, my, you know, extended family, you know, it affects everybody from, um, 
you know, every part of your life, um, you know, revolves around, you know, this diagnosis and the treatment and, uh, and you, you almost forget that those things are happening while the, um, while our patients are going through this. And then it really never ends, uh, meaning you're done with the surgery, chemo, radiation, and then, you know, there's always the follow-up and surveillance mm-hmm. and, um, and even that is, you know, and, and I've written a little bit about that is especially in the era of COVID is, you know, it's it somehow when I, um, you know, when I'm in my doctor's hat, seeing patients operating, you know, in, in clinic, uh, doing research, and I'm in the hospital in the midst of COVID, it's, you know, I, I'm actually, you know, I've become used to it. You know, we, we have protocols and systems and safety in place. But then when I come in for my own tests and exams, you know, I was, I had become, you know, completely used to that, you know, my wife and, you know, often my children would, you know, would uh, come in for my uh, testing or for my chemotherapy or, you know, obviously during my surgery and things like that. But, you know, we're now, you know, often not allowing visitors to come in, um, you know, appropriately. So for, for, you know, for safety concerns, but that, you know, fear and anxiety and not having that crutch to lean on. Um, it's like you're, you're, you look around the exam rooms and people are alone and it's frightening. And to, to me, that's just, uh, it, it's, it's horrible that, that this is what we have to, um, that many have to go through. And hopefully, you know, as vaccines and, you know, the, the strategies around COVID get better that, you know, people, family, friends, significant others can come back and be a part of that, you know, every piece of that journey that they can be and not have to um, deal with those alone. So for sure. And and how are you feeling now? Fortunately, so yeah, I'm back. I, you know, uh, operate, you know, see patients. uh, And, and, you know, every time I walk in now, I pause and I say, you know, don't just go in thinking, you know, what the next, I mean, I may know operatively, you know, what the next step is going to be and, and what plan I should be offering. But before I go and start telling them that really listen to them in in terms of what, what their goal is in in all this and, and then help them, you know, navigate those next steps. Dr. Golshin, thank you. Um, I I should ask you just very quickly, um, your, your relationship with BCRF. Um, is there a way to characterize, um, you know, how, what, what role BCRF plays in, in your research? Yeah, for, for sure. There's, there's, um, no way that the work that not only I've done, but others have been doing can get, could, could have gotten to the point that it has without BCRF support and funding and, you know, whether it's the Lauder fa- uh, family or, you know, Larry Norton or, you know, Dr. You know, Dr. Larry Norton or Dr. Judy Garber, you know, these people that are in leadership positions um, in BCRF and the way they approach um, the disease and the cure is exactly what this world needs. And um, there's no way that I would have been able to accomplish what I have without, without their support. And every dollar counts. Um, it's, it's that critical to, uh, to us. And, you know, with a lot of the things that have been 
cut because of, you know, of COVID um, and, and the difficulty in a, obtaining, you know, um, dollars through the National Institutes of Health and other governmental organizations, you know, every everything that BCRF does keeps, you know, me working one more day. And now I know it personally, you know, how important it is for us to, to, to find the cure uh, and to do better in the, in the work that we're doing. And um, I'll, I'll do it for, for as long as I'm allowed to. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. And I, I know we, you, you will take this only in the best way that we hope that the effort, only leads to your not working anymore and spending <laughs> spending your time on this. I, I want to go see a play tennis or do something else with uh, with with uh, Ellen Collins. <laughs> it sounds terrific, Doctor Goshen. Thank you so much for thank your you. time and and obviously the work that you do with patients every day. Thank you. Have a great afternoon. That was my conversation with Doctor Mira Golshan. My thanks to Doctor Golshan for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.